Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 30 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q. My name is Richard Kutcher and this week we have a really varied 30 minutes or so lined up for you. Our captive owned interview coming up shortly is with Jennifer Blair, Global Risk and Insurance Manager at Electronics and Headphones Manufacturer Bose. While in the second half of the episode we will hear from friends of the podcast London and Capital in the first of our quarterly investment and market updates. But before all of that, I'm delighted to say my co-host today is someone I've wanted to welcome onto the podcast for a while. He was CEO of Alliance Global Corporate and Specialty in the UK from 2015 to 2018 and is now a partner and head of structured solutions at McGill and Partners, a one-year-old specialty broker that has some really big names and new talent making a big impact in the UK and US large account space. Brian, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. So the arrival of McGill and Partners has been quite an exciting one for the for the insurance market with some big name arrivals over the past 12 months. Can you give our listeners a bit of background on the firm, kind of where it came from and, and its development in the past year? I think a, a year ago, there was four to five people uh, in a room with an idea. Uh, we're now north of 200 people. Uh, the business uh, originally founded by uh, Steve McGill, obviously of Aon fame. And also we have uh, John Lloyd, uh, background obviously Lloyd and Partners, and uh, Stephen Cross, I should mention, also in part of the founding group who was involved, if you remember, IRMG in the captive side yeah. way back when. Really, I, I think when I, I look back and think about our, our early discussions, the, the focus really was building a, a specialist group with senior professionals, very focused on solving problems for large corporate clients um, uh, with a deep understanding of clients and a deep understanding uh, of the market. So uh, a small group, niche company, focused on small number of companies and you know solving problems. Uh, we've been very successful in attracting some very senior talent from the market. I think they're ex- excited about our sort of one profit center approach which really sort of gets rid of any silo thinking and I've you know really enjoyed working with my colleagues on building ideas taking from all the specialties uh, for customers so I think that's been exciting and really that small feel where people are transaction focused uh, as opposed to maybe um, in stuck in l- large organizations maybe slightly distracted and I think in this environment um, having a different voice creating some competition um, for ideas for large corporates is very important. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that that last sentiment, particularly, Brian, obviously, with the news of the Aon or Willis acquisition. I think risk managers are certainly concerned at a lack of competition in the market. So I think they'd be pleased to see kind of a new exciting player, heavy hitter, uh, making some inroads. You mentioned there about having one profit center and kind of related to that. McGill obviously doesn't have a captive management arm, but you are working, as you said, with the larger accounts and presumably those clients will have sophisticated captives that are central to their uh, complex, uh, sophisticated insurance programs. What's your philosophy then on the role of of captives now uh, and in the future? Yeah, I've been dealing with captives for a, a long time. I think for me, the positive things about captives at the, at the very start was that they would give risk managers the ability to sort of increase and decrease their retentions over time to sort of to manage the cycle. It was clear in the last few years when it was a particularly soft cycle that for me, captives just on a pure risk management point of view were less vital because there was plenty of coverage available in the market. Retentions were relatively low. Pricing was was low. So, you know, for corporations to aggressively use their captives uh, in that 
environment was not really necessary. There was definitely a number of risk managers who were pushing the bounds of how to think about use of captives. We were involved in a lot of exciting structuring, providing multiple line coverage, uh, multiple layer coverage into captives to start putting more sort of difficult to insure risks into captives. And we sort of saw towards the end people putting in more unusual risks, stuff that hadn't been in there uh, before. So I think the I've always been excited about the idea of captives, about how corporates can use captives and how they can manage their risk over time. It has been sort of questioned on captives with solvency too, with bets and other areas, uh, what's the best way to use captives and how do corporates to think about it. But I think this environment will show captives at their best and I think people will begin to utilize them even more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about this particular environment in a moment. But now we're going to hear from a captive owner, a relatively new captive owner, in fact. Uh, Jennifer Blair is Global Risk and Insurance Manager at Bose, most famous for their noise-canceling headphones, of course. Some of you probably listen to this podcast on those headphones. Jennifer discussed her role, how Bose utilizes its Bermuda captive and their insurance strategy in this challenging environment. So I am the Global Risk and Insurance Manager. I've been in this role at Bose for close to five years now. Prior to joining this particular role, I was at Bose in a different capacity. So I've been with the company for 14 years and I started as a financial analyst. I worked mainly supporting our manufacturing divisions. So I sat in corporate, but supported all of our manufacturing facilities from a consolidated profit and loss statement and forecasting and supporting really just the manufacturing division as a whole. When the opportunity came about to become the risk manager, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, It had sat in legal for quite some time and Bose was going through a transitional phase So they decided to move it into treasury. And I kind of hesitated at first. It was very different and new. And the only thing I knew about insurance at the time was that I had to buy homeowners and car insurance for personal reasons. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a hassle. So insurance actually did not sound lovely at all. It's not, um, it's not that different, is it? The corporate insurance is still a hassle, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it is still a hassle. That is correct. Um, but it's really interesting. So I kind of got talked into the opportunity, but I'm really pleased with it. And I'm very excited with all the doors it's opened for me. There's a lot of pieces within insurance, both internally and externally. And it's really exciting. And I'm couldn't be happier with the path that this has brought me forward. Um, I recently started a master's in risk and insurance at Butler University, and that's really helped me as well because from my opinion, having no insurance background, anything I can do to learn insurance and get hands-on experience has been extremely beneficial in helping take the program at Bose to where I want it to be. Fantastic. And we'll come on a bit, a bit more about that program um, in a minute, particularly. But it's interesting you mentioned Butler there. I mean, Butler will probably be familiar to many of our listeners because of the really interesting work they've done around captives with their own uh, students forming a captive in, in Bermuda. So that, that's a really interesting connection. Um, now, talking of Bermuda there as well, I understand you formed or Bose formed a Bermuda captive in 
2018. I think that's when we first met Jen, I think, at the Bermuda Conference around that time. And had, had it been something... Uh, forming a captive, had that been something that you'd considered for a while at Bose? And, and why did it finally make sense to do it two years ago? Yeah, so I joined, as I mentioned, in 2015, the risk and insurance role at Bose. And prior to that, it sat in legal. So a lot of our policies hadn't really been looked at from a financial perspective in a long time. And a lot of them were actually set up for the company we were in you know 1995 even they were just dated and i really started to take a different look at them and at that point i didn't as i mentioned i didn't know anything about insurance but the little that i had learned it seemed as though a captive would make sense for the type of corporation bose was so i started to do a little bit of research i went i actually attended a bermuda captive forum in Boston with the help of my friends at Morgan Stanley. They introduced me to a lot of folks. And from there, I went to the Bermuda conference that year and just learned. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know if it would make sense, but it seemed like it did. We worked with our broker at the time on a feasibility, and it turned out that it actually did make quite a bit of sense for us. Um, a little background on the feasibility. Our broker at the time was a longtime broker and they had presented a captive to Bose many, many years ago. But again, it had sat in legal and the team wasn't really keen on it and did not think it would be a good fit. So they dusted it off and with leadership changes and support behind us and now looking at it from a financial lens, it definitely shifted the perspective and we learned that a captive would be a really good fit for us. It was probably two years in the making before it came to light, but that's quite normal from my understanding. And yeah. when it did come to light, um, we actually got the captive up and running within six weeks. Um, we had some tax changes in the U.S., and that really is what pushed to move quite quickly on it because we were able to take some advantages of the tax reform and have a blended tax rate. And it was a lot of savings to the corporation by moving forward within that fiscal year. Great. Well, it sounds like it was a very considered approach and obviously did your research. And, and that just shows the value of those kind of conferences, whether it's those roadshows uh, that Bermuda and other jurisdictions do or visiting the jurisdictions itself. So that's, that's really good to hear. So when you did form the captive finally, then what lines of insurance did you begin writing in the captive and, and maybe how has it evolved in the in the two years since 2018? Yeah, so we started quite slowly. The first lines that we had put in were medical stop loss, as we were already self-insuring up until that point anyway. And then we added in workers' compensation, which in the States, we were self-insuring as well, and general liability. So when before we form the captive, probably a year before that, we had started moving a lot of our deductibles around to higher retentions in order to become more self-insured, if you will, which really set us up to line up nicely with preparing for the captive the following year. Now we still have those same lines in there and we've grown it small um, still, but we've grown it. So we currently have business travel accident and our cargo marine policy in there. 
Great. Uh, really interesting to see that, that how that's changed slightly over the two years. So how, do you, how did you assess and how do you currently assess and decide what lines of insurance may be suitable to go into the captive now or in the future? Is, is there a quite a defined process in place to do that? It's interesting. So Bose's approach to insurance was kind of all over the map. Like we weren't buying stuff that we probably should have been buying and we were taking on that risk. And then there was stuff that we were buying that we probably didn't need um, or we had just quite low deductibles and it didn't make sense because maybe the risk wasn't there for us. So what we've done over the past two years is any policy that's come up for renewal, we look at with a very strategic approach. We work with Beecher Carlson as our broker and we work with Granite Management as our captive manager. And the three of us have had several strategy meetings in terms of where we wanna take the captive and a timeline as to how soon we wanna get there. And each policy that comes up, we look at that strategy and we look at our timeline and determine does it make sense? Does it make sense to do this now? Does it make sense to wait? We're in a very hard market. Property has becoming hard for the past two years now, I guess, when you really look at it. So that's something we've assessed over the past year and a half as that renewal has come up. Right now, it doesn't make sense to put it in the captive because the pricing itself makes sense to keep it within our own outsource program. So, so each line that comes up for renewal, we do take a strategic look at and determine if it will fit in a long-term strategy. And we don't just do it to trade dollars and save money. Yeah, interesting. So then you, you mentioned when you first came in that it was kind of, or well, first took over this role that uh, the insurance strategy was kind of all over the map a little bit. Do, do you think you now do have a, a particular philosophy or attitude which which shapes the strategy now? And, and then also, of course, does that then contribute to how the CAPT is involved? Yeah, we absolutely do. So we have always been a company that's been debt-free and we've had a strong balance sheet over the years. And we look at that as a, a lever to our strategy. We don't want to just purchase insurance for the sake of purchasing insurance. We understand that in a lot of cases, you do need omitted paper, you need a front. So we look at that and determine if we can self-insure or through the captive, or if we do need that paper. And if so, then we take the approach in looking at third parties or potentially buying the traditional insurance, depending on pricing and long-term strategy. We're looking at a program right now where we do buy coverage, but the coverage we buy has such a high retention that we would never use it. So it's kind of a catastrophe coverage for us. And we're trying to determine if it even makes sense to keep that because it's a program, too, that we don't need paper on. So we do have a strategy that we use and a philosophy that we're trying to put into place. When I took over the role, a lot of this was cleanup, too. We didn't really have a true world broker or global broker. And now we we're part of the WBN. And that's been helpful because it's helped us find all these pocket policies around the world and we realized that by having the captive, if a country needs a smaller deductible or a different type of policy, then we can really leverage the captive and help them. And that helps from our philosophy, too, because we don't want countries going out and just buying what they think they need. 
So we've really put some internal procedures in place by having this captive as well. Yeah, it's really interesting using the captive to kind of gain some control over the global programs and then making use of uh, the well-broken network. Um, I've not really heard captive owners mention that specifically before, so that's that's really nice. I mean, you, you, I think you just touched on some of this there, but do you have to strike a balance between kind of short-term fix for in some, some of your insurance approaches and the long-term benefits to the, to the captive strategy? Is there a trade-off between those two things? Yeah, there absolutely is. I mean, there are some programs we've looked at and putting in the captive as the renewal had come up and it didn't make sense because they were larger programs that any loss would just essentially bankrupt the captive. So we're very careful in the lines that we are putting in, in being cognizant of that long-term strategy. So we are building it slowly to ensure that the captive does retain some level of profit or a break even point because we don't want to have all this debt within the captive. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. So welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I'm delighted to say I'm now joined by Chris DL, Executive Director at Friends of the Podcast London and Capital. This now is going to be the first of quarterly market and investment updates that we are going to be receiving from London and Capital. And who are we uh, about to hear from this week? So I sat down um, earlier this week with one of our institutional strategists and uh, senior portfolio managers, Mike Trudeau. Mike hails from Canada, so we've got a bit of an international feeling to uh, to this edition. But uh, Mike, Mike's really going to talk to us a little bit about how we're seeing the current macroeconomic market conditions, as well as talking a little bit about the implications for fixed income and equity. Try to keep it brief. So I hope all your listeners enjoy it. Well, looking forward to it, Chris. Here is Chris in conversation with Mike Trudeau. Afternoon, Mike. Thanks for agreeing to uh, sit down with me on the Global Captive podcast and talk us through a bit about the, uh, the current investment environment. In the interest of brevity, we're we're only going to talk through the highest level view. But if there's any listeners out there who are interested in talking through the uh, the granular detail of our outlook, please do get in touch. Uh, my details are going to be shared in the show notes and also on the Global Captive Podcast website. With all that said, Mike, we're living through one of the most disruptive economic recessions since the 1930s. Clearly, there's no shortage of material that we could cover. But if we were to look back over the last few months, what are the three most notable and relevant events that stand out for you? Thanks, Chris, and uh, a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. 
as you say, there has been a, a plethora of, of things to talk about uh, at the moment with the economic virus picture changing daily. But at a high level, I'd say the three most notable events of the past few months have been the, the scale and impact of the global lockdown, the central bank intervention, and government stimulus. What we've seen is that uh, government-imposed lockdown measures with the aim of containing the health crisis and strain on the healthcare system has severely impacted economic activity as borne out by economic indicators that registered record low levels of activity. With GDP growth numbers now starting to come in for the first quarter of 2020, the impact of COVID-19 is becoming apparent. First quarter GDP fell by 4.8% in the U.S. on an annualized basis and by over 14% in Europe. And remember that this only includes a few weeks of lockdown measures for these Western economies during that period. A record 33 million people have filed for unemployment claims in the U.S. since the end of March, wiping out all of the job gains created since the great financial crisis. Q2 GDP figures are expected to be much worse in the region of a 30% drop for the U.S. The magnitude and speed of this contraction is unprecedented. Looking ahead for the remainder of the year, in the IMF's latest update, global growth is now expected to contract by 3%, making it the deepest crash since the Great Depression, deeper than the Great Financial Crisis. We expect this growth rate to be revised even lower in the coming weeks, as the spread of the virus has continued since this release, and as there are only just tentative signs of a gradual easing of restrictions. Our view is that the recovery is likely to be more of a, a swoosh shape than a V-shape. That said, the outlook is helped by the extraordinary stimulus measures that have been introduced from all levels, including monetary, fiscal, emergency, and macroprudential policies. This stimuli across the four major economies has amounted to almost 25% of GDP with more to come. Both governments and central banks have shown a willingness to do whatever it takes to ensure the quickest possible recovery, and I believe that fiscal and monetary coordination will be higher going forward. One of your key roles as a, um, as a senior portfolio manager here at London Capital is to really weigh up the likely risk and return profile for any sort of uh, any investments we're, we're making on behalf of clients. When you look at today's environment and ask us, uh, ask yourself, you know, how could this get any worse? What are the three most important risks you're considering when putting, putting client money to work? There's, there's obviously many risks at the moment, but in my opinion, the key factors to watch going forward for the recovery and its potential long-lasting damage will be, first and foremost, a medical solution, specifically the, the development of a vaccine. There's been some initial signs of possible treatments and antibody tests, but ultimately, a vaccine will be the key piece to bring more certainty back to markets. However, this is unlikely to happen anytime soon and, and could be many, many months away. Secondly, as economies begin to ease restrictions, investors will be looking to see for any signs of a second wave of virus infections. This would be particularly damaging as it would lead to a prolonged lockdown and a more entrenched recession, like I mentioned earlier. This would put more pressure on businesses, potentially leading to a higher rate of defaults, a significant cut in investment spending, and more permanent job losses. Consumers' ability and willingness to spend will be critical to watch as consumption represents roughly two-thirds of GDP in Western economies. Thirdly, despite significant fiscal and monetary stimulus, the lockdown has created a deflationary environment with CPI falling to record levels in April. This is dangerous as part of the reason the Great Depression lasted so long was that people waited to make purchases. 
such as cars and home appliances, in anticipation that prices would go down if they held off from purchasing now. Some commentators have suggested that economies emerging from lockdown will trigger a burst of inflation as pent-up spending is released, but I strongly believe that the global lockdown will instead exacerbate long-standing structural forces that have kept inflation low in advanced economies. Case in point is e-commerce. This is a trend that's been happening for years, and it's one of the only winners of the current environment, and its growth will be pushed further ahead in this environment. Also, as has happened in previous recessions, companies looking to manage costs will look to replace higher-cost labor with automation technology. When you look at the equity markets, for example, we saw equity markets in free fall in the middle of March, bounce back strongly in April. Beginning of May, we've seen a little bit of weakness again coming into uh, coming into some of the major equity indices in the US. It feels a bit like the equity markets have uncoupled from the economic reality that we're seeing on the ground. Is that fair? And, and if so, why are, we, why are we seeing some of that? Is that some of those dynamics you're talking about in terms of e-commerce winners? Yeah, as we saw, equity markets fell 34% in a four-week span during March, and they've since recovered. It's since recovered 26%, while the economic landscape continues to deteriorate. I think there's several reasons for this. Firstly, the equity market is forward-looking in nature, and so the market is looking past 2020 and into 2021. Also, the recent rally has been driven by evidence of a slowdown in new virus infections and subsequently reaching a global peak lockdown. Also, the series of dramatic Fed policy actions have stabilized the treasury market, which is the risk-free rate that is priced into every asset class. And in addition, the market has moved higher on the tremendous fiscal stimulus provided, such as the CARES Act in the US and the expectation for more stimulus going forward. However, we at LNC were cautious on equity markets at the moment, as the rally has maybe gone too far in pricing a V-shaped recovery. The outlook is still too uncertain to determine the pace of recovery and the potential negative knock-on effects to areas such as the labor market. Secondly, as you say, there seems to be this disconnect between the S&P and the economic reality on the ground. Well, the stock market is increasingly being driven by a handful of large tech companies, such as Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, who are the beneficiaries of this new remote world. These five stocks alone account for over 20% of the S&P. The strength of this new digital world is reflected by the fact that despite the S&P being down 12% for the year at this point, the IT sector is in positive territory. There is now a divergence between what people think is a real economy and what is now actually the real economy. Everything is now taking place away from your eyes, from what you see on the high street, and instead is in server rooms and cloud computing facilities that you'll never walk through or see. Online activity is taking a massive share of all commerce right now. And so it, it isn't so strange that the companies benefiting most from online activity are seeing their stocks rally in response. It just so happens that those stocks are already the largest and most important components of the equity index. One last question. This is really relevant for, for most captive investment portfolios that have typically a larger allocation to, to fixed income. How have those markets fared? Have they behaved as expected? Just a, a quick summary on that would be great. Yeah, fixed income markets, again, they, they weren't spared from the, the panic selling in March, even treasuries to some degree. However, as the Fed cut sh short-term rates to almost 0% and announced unlimited buying of treasuries, this helped to stabilize government bonds, and they ultimately performed as expected. 
They've continued to provide diversification by producing positive returns as risk markets went negative. What that has meant is that fixed income investors have seen good returns, but some of that was offset by any exposure to corporate bonds. As when equities dropped, so too did this asset class, as investors became concerned about the strength of balance sheets, an increase in credit downgrades, potential defaults. And this is given that many companies issued record levels of debt since the great financial crisis as rates remained very low. Looking ahead, the volatility in markets caused mispricing in some areas of the corporate bond markets, and there is value to be had in high-quality names with strong balance sheets that can weather the storm of this crisis. Thanks a lot for, uh, for your analysis and your time. Nothing, nothing else to say other than uh, back to you, Richard. So before the break, Brian, you were mentioning this kind of a current environment that we find ourselves in, uh, obviously challenging for, for numerous reasons. And we were already well into a hardening market before the pandemic. And most people expect the COVID-19 fallout will only exacerbate that hard insurance market. What impact do you expect this environment to have on insurance strategies more broadly and the role of captives uh, specifically? Sure. I, th- I think going back to what we were discussing in relation to the hardening market or the soft market. So in the soft market, there tends to be wide coverage available, large limits and retentions aren't that significant. The hard market trends tend to be focused on narrowing coverage, maybe reducing limits uh, and pushing retentions. So I think the DNO market would be a perfect example of, of where that's happening. And I think from a, a customer or client point of view, it's trying to think through, okay, what's the, the right retention for me? How do I manage that retention? What, what's the impact on my capital in the captive? And what's my best way of managing, particularly my sideways exposure in the captive? And not only on a one-year basis, but on a multi-year basis. So I think focusing on that you know, what's the return on capital? What's the most efficient capital structure? Really working the capital in the captive hard and, and making sure that the clients are getting the best sort of risk reward for re- retaining risk. So I see a lot more stress in captives. I can imagine if, if insurers are feeding stress, captives as many insurance companies will be feeding stress, you know, pressure on investments, pressure on capital, potentially pressure, you know, from the corporates as well to make sure that they're they're maximizing their use of capital in a time where corporates themselves are scrambling around for cash. So I, I see captives being very central to the overall risk management strategy and discussions on retentions going forward. Do, do you think the pandemic will have a, a long-term impact on the insurance market and how corporates buy and, and structure their coverage? It's difficult in the middle of it to, to see it. There's, there's certain core things. Obviously, I was involved uh, in some of the Tom work in Lloyd's and the modernization. So it was, it's been interesting to see how that sort of flown through. You know, for our business, we're working extremely well digitally. All our systems are working, replacing business digitally. We're interfacing with the market digitally. So we're very much able to trade in this environment. And I think for the market has shown a remarkable resilience and ability to trade digitally and proved it can do. So I think the digitalization of the market is is definitely going to continue. I don't see any reason for that to slow down. It should, should really accelerate. Uh, for customers, it's an interesting one. I think the, the bigger topics for the larger corporates are, you know, how they think about insurance and what insurance they need. You know, the insurance is I suppose, struggling with some of the correlation risks. We've got a global economy. 
global customers that tend to have losses that correlate around the globe. So you've had you know, concern about the industry's ability to take some level of cyber risk, certainly at the correlation level. You know, the pandemic, for obvious reasons, the insurance market struggles with it, but it also means that then large corporates don't have coverage uh, in this environment. So I think, again, using the captive to build up wordings, to build up coverage, to build up sort of risk experience in certain areas can be can be very positive. And I see more corporates doing that. But but fundamentally, other changes on how they buy insurance, I, I don't see it probably just more than the, the heavier use of, of digitalization. I think we, we know, of course, there's there's a, there's probably a, a 50 to 100, what I would probably term super captives out there, kind of the really huge captives, very sophisticated writing life, non-life and multi-lines and making little use of the, of the traditional primary insurance market for sure. And as you've touched upon, we've obviously seen a huge, and as has been documented a lot in the last few years, a huge shift towards the intangible assets of companies. Assets are increasingly intangible rather than tangible. Is there a, is there a, a danger that some of the insurers become a little bit irrelevant if, if they don't move with the times and, and try and create those, those new innovative products that address those intangible risks? Yeah, a great question. There's, there's a couple of points actually there. One, what's interesting with, again, with the hard market and uh, retentions is that the more these super captives or more captives increase their retentions, the, the more the insurance market becomes closer to a reinsurance market. It gets moved up into an excess position because the clients are managing all the attritional over time. So that changes how insurers have to think about risk. They, they become slightly more volatile. And I think you've seen a trend in the last few years where insurance products are also providing services. So you've seen some some change in that, certainly on the cyber side. Some of the reputation products have services attached to them. So they're, they're trying to change the product just from pure indemnity. So that's certainly a change for the insurers. Look, I, I think there's a book recently I read, um, Capitalism Without Capital, which has some very startling figures on the rise in intangible assets versus tangible assets. The insurance market definitely has to adapt to that new environment. I was working on some work with sensors, uh, looking at the data that's coming out for sensor technology, and that's just going to change how risk is evaluated, the, the level of data that's available. And you know, this idea of having an annual data dump for the renewal when actually most major corporations are getting day-to-day data uh, on the volatility of their uh, asset based on, you know, real-time sensor data. I think the insurance market has to really adapt to that data. You know, at the moment, obviously, you see it in weather, you see it in hurricanes, you see a lot of the sensor data coming into manufacturing, but you also see customers who are earning as much money on the after-sales service of the product as their product, and therefore business interruption in that environment is, is completely different than when you used to just sell a product and, and have nothing to do with it once you'd sold it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you touched earlier, Brian, on expectancy that there'll be an increase in kind of retentions from their corporates, whether it's in the captive or not. Might, might we see a comeback for other alternative arrangements? The virtual captive approach, for example, I've heard a few corporates and service providers uh, mention in, in the last few months that the virtual captive may well be becoming more relevant again. Yeah, look, for my history, alternative risk and alternative structures have always been uh, at their height during a hard market where people have to think differently about risk and, and have to come up with different solutions. So I've pretty well always lived in that that environment of tension where people need to think about different solutions. So I, I see alternative solutions definitely growing in the market. I think different ways to think about risk, different ways to think about capital. So there is going to be growth definitely in the alternative risk market. 
The virtual capital, sorry, virtual captive idea, I suppose we've discussed it for, for four or five years. And that was, in my memory, certainly heavily driven by you know, Solvency 2 and other areas where people were sort of looking at it and saying, well, I want to get the benefit of the captive. I've got these increased retentions and I want to manage them over time, but I don't necessarily want to have the whole captive infrastructure to, to do that. So I think it is an option. And I'll be interested to see how the market progresses. At, at the moment, I think most people kept captives are continuing to use them aggressively. So I, I see some growth in that area. Definitely see some growth in insurers. Again, going back to the idea of offering services. So a lot of fronting services uh, offered by uh, insurers that, that may not may not necessarily be tied to the risk transfer. As historically, the risk transfer was the profit and the fronting was sort of nearly thrown in afterwards. And now fronting services are nearly a service on, on themselves. Brian, you've got a long experience of working for insurance companies, as you mentioned at the start, including over three years as CEO of Allianz in the UK. How have you seen the the large commercial insurers' attitude towards captives evolve over the years, and and why has that had to happen? Great, great question. Um, I think for for me, it goes back to one of the examples I had in the past was where a client was looking at a significant increase in retention in relation to physical damage on motor. And for me, it made sense. There was a lot of frictional cost in the client insuring this, and it made sense to retain it. It made sense to retain it in a captive environment. But obviously, it took a significant amount of income out of the business. And as I mentioned before, what it did to the insurance company was that it put them in a more levered position. So they became an excess player, as I said, closer to a reinsurance player. So that culturally was a big change in the business and a big change for underwriters to think about. So I think that was one of the the issues with captives. And one of the other issues was putting a non-rated entity in between the insurer and the original insured and the the issues around collateral and, and other things. Now, I think the insurers certainly dealing with large corporate risks are well used to dealing with captives that they're going to continue to support captives and come up with new products for them and again whether it's the fronting products the the virtual captive the multi-year multi-line captive or just your traditional excess position so i think insurers are definitely going to continue to support captives again i always thought the you know the involvement of the reinsurance market on the back end of captives is also key when you look at sort of the the costs that can be coming through the system. So I would certainly see in that environment as it becomes more excess that you may you know unbundle some of the services and some have have people at the back end just doing the leverage piece and other people providing the the services at the front end. So that so there may be changes in the sort of that side of the services that are offered as captives retain more risk. Well, that is all we have time for on episode thirty of the Global Captive Podcast. I would like to thank Jen Blair of Bose, Christy L and the London Capital team for their market updates for joining me this time. And Brian, something I've just realized midway through this recording is you are actually the hundredth guest, exactly, if my if my math is correct, on the on the Global Captive Podcast since we launched in March 2019. So a bit of a random landmark for you, uh, for you and us there, Brian. But uh, thank you for coming on and, and do stay in touch. No, will do. I think this is one of my first podcasts. So uh, thank you very much for the invitation. I can see see this method of communication growing. So it's uh, very interesting. So thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. As ever, do stay safe, healthy, and see you next time, captives.